Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 687 for the 3rd of April, 2020. This week, I described the launchy program launcher for Windows three weeks ago, and I said I'd soon have information about a competitor. This week, we'll take a look at Executor. In short circuits, fixing network problems is difficult unless you have a spray can of magic network pixie dust. So let's review some of the quick and easy steps that can get your computer back online. If you've ever wished that you could give someone or some company a temporary email address to avoid spam, it's easy, and you even have a choice of several services. And in spare parts only on the website, museum tours, theme parks, Broadway plays, and more are all available online, and many are free. They're good options in this time of social distancing and staying at home. Researchers at Harvard say a financial data bill of rights is long past due. And 20 years ago, Star Office was being promoted as the application that would wrest domination of the desktop away from Microsoft. Three weeks ago, I described the launcher program Launchy that works with Windows, Mac OS, and Linux. As useful as Launchy is, Windows users might prefer an application with more features. Executor, though, is not for macOS or Linux users. It's only for Windows. Those who like the idea of a launcher application but would like more power and flexibility should take a look at Executor. It has many of Launchy's advantages, but the customization options far exceed Launchy's. The downside to customization, though, is a more complex series of configuration screens. Now let's take a look. The default key combination to wake Executor is Shift-Windows-Key-Z. Fortunately, that can easily be changed. When the application was first released, users could choose the Windows key and A or the Windows key and Z. Microsoft has appropriated most of the key combinations that use the Windows key, so Shift-Windows-Key-Z was chosen. Take a look at your keyboard. Those three keys are very close together, and striking all three requires what is, at least to me, a very strange hand position. I'd simply reassigned Executor's hotkey to be the same as Launchy's, Alt, Spacebar. The basic operation is exactly like Launchy. Activate Executor and type the first few letters of a program name. So Dream offers to launch Dreamweaver. However, as with Launchy, DW doesn't work. But instead of having to create a new directory and copy the application link there, the user just drags and drops the application's link from the Start Menu directory to Executor's list of keywords, then fills in the preferred launch name. Executor takes care of populating all the additional fields, and then the application responds to the desired DW. So, at its most basic, Executor does what Launchy does, plus a lot more. Both applications are free. Executor is still in active development, while Launchy hasn't been updated in... 12 years. Executor has added some clever features with a series of keywords that are prefaced by a question mark. Activating the launcher and then typing a question mark displays a list of functions such as empty the recycle bin, hibernate, 
lock, log off, shut down, and sleep. Emptying the recycle bin normally involves displaying the desktop, right-clicking the recycle bin, then selecting Empty from the context menu. None of that is necessary with Executor. Just wake the application, type a question mark, and select Empty Recycle Bin from the list. Executor includes more than 40 useful keywords. Someone who's searching for information about Nikon cameras, for example, can open Executor and type Google Nikon. Pressing Enter will place focus on the user's primary browser if it's already open, or open the browser if it's not running. It'll then launch Google and perform a search with Nikon as the target. Several other clever functions are built in. One is the ability to show all running applications. Press the hotkey and type Apps to see the list. But that's not all. You can then scroll through the list and right-click an application to view the context menu and switch to the application, close it, kill it, display more information about it, or adjust the application's window size. Earlier, I mentioned being able to type Google at a search term. This also works with other websites. Press the hotkey and type techbiter.com to switch to the default browser, or open it if it's not running, and launch the TechBiter Worldwide website. Press the hotkey and type clipboard to see all the text you've recently cut or copied to the clipboard. Microsoft's new and improved clipboard eliminates the need for this function, but it's still there if you want to use it. Spend some time poking around in the online documentation after installing Executor, and you'll probably find a lot of capabilities that will make your life easier. What I found most surprising about the application is the quantity of settings and options. In addition to the separate Keywords panel, Executor has a Settings panel with eight tabs. The General tab is where Executor can be set to start with Windows. Most people will probably want that to happen. By default, Executor vanishes after being used to launch a program, and I see no reason to change that setting. But if you'd like it to hang around on the screen, clear the Auto Hide option. The defaults on the General screen rarely need to be changed. Second tab is Input, Wording, and Auto-Completion. It controls the order in which it shows suggestions. I turned on indexed items. Depending on which terms you want to appear first, you might want to change the order. By default, the last command remains in the input window when Executor pops up. I didn't like that, so I selected the option to clear the window. The developer's website explains each setting on every tab. The third tab is for drop-down or list. It specifies which types of keywords should be displayed in the drop-down and in what order. The default order is history, keywords, file system, and indexed items. I changed that to place keywords first. The fourth tab controls the visual appearance of the application. You can specify colors and typefaces. There's also a link to the executor website where additional skins are stored. The fifth tab is for indexing and cache. It controls when Executor searches for new programs and links, as well as which directories it should search. If you'd prefer to drag links to a special directory instead of creating new keywords manually, as I described earlier, this is the panel where one or more locations can be specified for inclusion in indexing. The sixth tab is for notes. Notes can be added to Executor. This is the tab that specifies what they'll look like on the screen. Tab 7 is for sound, and if you enable sound, you'll need to specify which audio files are used to indicate success and failure, and an alarm sound for those who use the application's timer function. The miscellaneous tab, number 8, allows users to exclude items that should not be offered as suggestions, and also use a specific web browser and file explorer. 
Executor can be downloaded as an installer, which is the best choice for most people, or as a zip file for 32-bit systems or a zip file for 64-bit systems. The zip files do not have to be installed. Just extract the files and run the program. The installer works like other Windows installers and will choose the appropriate application, 32-bit or 64-bit, for your computer. So the bottom line, I'm going to give Executor 4Cats. It's a program launcher that does more than just launch programs. The only reason Executor has a 4Cat rating instead of a 5Cat rating is the lack of detailed, readable documentation. The author of the program, Martin Bresson, explains it this way, and I quote him, As I, the developer, am not specialized at writing an easy, understandable sales pitch talk about the application, I recommend that you check out the presentation section. Also, for more tech-related people, see help for more detail on each feature. The screenshots section might also give a quick impression of Executor. That's what the developer has to say about his own shortcomings on documentation. So, the information you need to use Executor is all there. It's just not in the best format. Read more or download Executor from the developer's website. There's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Note, though, that if the link displays a warning about security, you can safely ignore it. And if the connection fails, use the standard HTTP link instead of the HTTPS link. Executor is free, but you can donate to the author if you find the application to be useful. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, unless your home network has been dusted liberally with magic network pixie dust, you probably encounter occasional problems. Sometimes the cause of the problem is obvious, but more often than not, the problem does its best to avoid your eyes. To resolve the problem, you'll need to poke around until you find something that looks like it might be the problem, and then use your Google Foo to find a solution. The XKCD troubleshooting flowchart that I've shared before may seem like a joke. You'll see it on the TechBiter Worldwide website again this week. It is not a joke. Nobody knows everything, and that applies double to me. But anyone can do some basic troubleshooting by using Google, or DuckDuckGo if you prefer, just to research the problem. Network problems tend to be hidden under opaque layers of settings that lurk behind unknown acronyms and initials. So let's see what can be done before you raise the white flag and call for help. Let's assume we have a common problem. No internet access. There are three common first steps to take, but I'm going to preface that with one that I'll call step zero, because I think it's what you should do before performing the first three steps. Look at the router to make sure that it's on and that there are some lights blinking. Then look at the cable modem. One of the lights should be labeled Internet, or WAN, W-A-N for Wide Area Network. For most cable modems, this light should be on solid. 
If it's blinking or off, the problem is unlikely to be something you can fix. This indicates a problem with the cable itself. If you find the problem there, call the internet service provider. If not, the problem is inside your network. So if you have another wired device that's connected to the router or a wireless device that uses your Wi-Fi router, try one more step zero test. See if you can connect to the internet via the router using the other device. If you can, the router and the modem are both okay and you can skip what I've listed here as steps one, two, and three. And okay, one more final step zero test. It involves confirming that the problem really is a network problem and not a website that's currently out of service. Try connecting to www.example.com. That's a generic domain that's used for testing. You probably already figured that out from the domain name. Or you can visit Down for Everyone or Just Me. There's a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website and have it test for the site that you're unable to reach. If the problem is with one site, there's nothing you can do about it. So now we're done with the step zero stuff. The first three steps can be done one at a time, or you can combine them into a single step. Doing the tasks one at a time lets you identify the source of the problem if one of the steps fixes it. First, reboot the computer, then reboot the router, then reboot the cable modem. If you're not interested in identifying the precise source, just do them all at once. Power the computer off, make sure nobody else is using the internet, and then turn off the router, and finally turn off the cable modem. Wait a minute or so, then turn the cable modem back on, then turn the router back on, and wait for those two devices to go through their full boot process. When the modem's WAN or internet light indicates a connection, and you see activity on the router, start the computer. If that fixed the problem, you're done. But let's continue with step two. It's often recommended as step one. In, in any event, it's wise to try this before you get too deep into other troubleshooting. Check the cables to be sure they're plugged in properly. And by check, I don't mean just look at them. Disconnect and reconnect every network cable between the outside world and the cable modem, between the cable modem and the router, and between the router and any devices that are connected to the cable. If your device is connected via Wi-Fi, tell it to forget the current connection and connect to it again. If there's still no connection after getting this far, the time has come to check some settings. Start with Settings, Network and Internet, Status, and click Network Troubleshooter. This runs a Microsoft Diagnostics tool that checks for common problems and is able to fix some of them automatically. If it can't detect the problem, the troubleshooter will ask some questions to see if it can identify the issue. The troubleshooter can help with shared files, direct access, and remote desktop connections. Sometimes. So if you're lucky, the problem is now solved. If not, there's one more thing you can try. Down at the bottom of the screen, you'll see the words Network Reset. Don't click this link just to see what it does. But if nothing else has worked, give it a try. Windows will remove and then reinstall all network adapters and apply default settings to all networking components. You'll then need to restart the computer, and you may need to reconfigure network-related features such as VPNs once you're logged in again. So if the network reset didn't work, 
Well, maybe it's time to try ipconfig. That's the Internet Protocol Configuration Tool that's part of Windows. Open a command prompt and type a couple of commands. The first will destroy your current IP address. The second will obtain a new one. These are ipconfig forward slash release and ipconfig forward slash renew. But you'll find those on the TechBiter Worldwide website, so you can just copy and paste if you want. It is unlikely that that will resolve the problem, but it does rule out a problem with the computer's IP address. So the next step is to reset the computer's DNS cache. If the command prompt is still open, you'll want to type two more commands, ipconfig forward slash flush DNS and ipconfig forward slash register DNS. Again, you can copy and paste from the TechBiter Worldwide website. The DNS cache, which is also called the DNS resolver cache, is a temporary database that the computer uses to track recent visits and attempted visits to websites and internet domains. If there's a problem with the cache file, emptying it can fix the problem. And if the problem still isn't resolved, try this command, ipconfig forward slash all. Now that's not going to resolve the problem, I can guarantee that. But it will display all of the computer's IP information for each adapter, the DNS server's IP address, and the system's MAC address. The Media Access Control, or MAC address, is a unique identifier assigned to a network interface controller. And as I said, this won't do anything to solve the problem, but it does give you information that's helpful if you need to work with somebody else to resolve the problem. And good luck! Chances are that you receive more spam than you want. Does anyone ever receive less spam than they want? Well, anyway, there are ways to reduce the clutter. Having more than one email address can help. I have one super secret email address that I share only with banks and other financial institutions. The account uses random characters and numbers, so there's nothing that connects it to me, and the address has never received any spam. The primary address is on a lot of spam lists, so I may soon create a new address that will be shared only with friends. I'll still need to check the old address, and I'll continue to use it for businesses that I deal with regularly. Another good option involves creating a disposable email address. Several organizations exist so that you can create such an address when you're signing up for something that you may not fully trust. And these organizations let you create a temporary disposable email address that you can check for responses, but cannot be associated with you or your primary email address. These email addresses usually have no security at all, so anyone can see messages sent to the disposable address if they know what the address is. You won't want to include any real addresses, account numbers, or other personal information in messages to or from the phony address, but then you shouldn't include that kind of information in any email message. There are lots of organizations that provide this kind of service. Here's a list of just a few. 10-Minute Mail creates random email addresses that are good for offers that will send an immediate response. The address expires in 10 minutes, but you can request a longer period. Email on Deck will allow you to create a temporary email box that will expire after a few hours. Gorilla Mail is unusual in that you can use it to send messages and even attachments, and you can choose from nearly a dozen domain names. 
MailDrop creates a random email address, or it will allow you to specify the name. You can return to pick up messages. If you choose a mailbox name that already exists, you might see messages addressed to another user. As I said, there's no security with these addresses. And Throwaway Mail creates an email address that expires after 48 hours. You'll find links to all five of those services on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. The services can be useful, but just keep in mind their privacy limitations. No email account fakery, or any other kind of fakery, is needed for spare parts, but you will have to use a browser to read this week's topics, which include museum tours, theme parks, Broadway plays, and more, all available online, and many are free. They're good options in this time of social distancing and staying at home. Researchers at Harvard say that a financial data bill of rights is long past due. And 20 years ago, Star Office was being promoted as the application that would wrest domination of the desktop away from Microsoft. Well, didn't quite happen that way. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.